In this episode of The Cole Memo, I welcome back defense attorneys Evan Bruno and Colmey Galholtra. If you're a cannabis user in Illinois, these names should be on your radar. Whether you're a seasoned smoker or just an occasional user, having access to legal representation in the context of using or possessing cannabis in Illinois is still crucial. Fortunately, you can easily connect with these experienced defense attorneys through their respective websites, which I've conveniently linked in the show notes for this episode. As I said, this is not the first time that I've connected with Evan and Coolme for a podcast episode. If you're interested in diving deeper into their insights and expertise, check out the show notes for links to our previous conversations. These past episodes offer valuable discussions and information that can further inform your understanding of the legal landscape surrounding cannabis in Illinois. Stay informed, stay connected, and ensure you have the legal support you need when it matters most. This is The Cole Memo. I am your host, Cole Preston. Every episode is released in audio, video, and transcript format. To find the transcript, audio, or video version of any episode, please refer to the description of the episode that you're listening to now. Within that description, you can find a link that will take you to our website, which will display the transcript for this episode and the platforms where you can find this episode in audio or video formats. If you're unable to locate the episode description on whichever platform you're listening from, simply note the episode number and visit thecolememo.com. From there, you can find the corresponding episode, and then you'll be able to access the audio, video, and transcript version of that episode. You might also find any links that we reference during the episode so that you might be able to do your own research. Those links I mentioned earlier, for example, will be found in the show notes for this episode. If you're not listening to this episode of The Cole Memo on Patreon, then you are listening to this episode later than our patrons. To become a patron, go to thecolememo.com slash Patreon. Once again, that's T-H-E-C-O-L-E-M-E-M-O dot com slash P-A-T-R-E-O-N. It's a great way to support our show. It costs a lot to do this show, from hosting to licensing and everything else. Subscribing on Patreon only costs $3 a month, and it allows you to get access to shows as they release, and it's a way to directly support this show. This support, this show, is funded by listeners like you. One of the best ways to support our show, however, is absolutely free. Subscribe to or follow our show. Leave us a positive review from wherever you're listening to us from. Favorite this episode. Give it a thumbs up leave a comment, or post a review. Your engagement and support is appreciated. Today is January 17th, 2024. Enjoy this episode of The Cole Memo. Thank you both for coming back onto the show today. And uh, flip of a coin, um, either one of you, please introduce yourself and importantly, tell your audience where, tell my audience where they can find you uh, in case they need your services. Take a call me. Oh, Bruno, uh, Evan should go first. But anyway, uh, I'm Kumit Galhotra, well known in the community as Bob Galhotra. I'm a criminal defense attorney. It's my 33rd year practicing in Illinois. Uh, and uh, I'm an adjunct professor at Chicago Kent College of Law, and uh, I do primarily criminal defense uh, here up in Cook County and also in other counties throughout the state of Illinois. I'm Evan Bruno of Bruno Law Offices in Urbana, Illinois. Uh, my firm, all that we do is criminal defense and traffic defense all throughout central Illinois, um, based in Champaign County, but we do the whole um, area, mostly East Central Illinois. Um, and uh, there's a few other lawyers here, but I'm kind of, uh, I've taken a particular interest in this subject matter, as you know, Cole. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And folks, if it makes it easier on you, we'll have uh, the links to each of their websites in the podcast description. Uh, really quick, maybe both of you or either of you can say it better myself, but I just want to make it clear today that that everything we cover today we talk about is not legal advice. Uh, we're simply discussing what has occurred in Illinois. Would either of you like to add to what I've just said? I mean, I think that's a great disclaimer. To get real legal advice, you should talk to a lawyer personally about your own personal situation. Try not to draw too many conclusions from what we're talking about because we're not giving you legal advice. We're just discussing the law. And uh, I, from what I understand, we're going to discuss this Supreme Court opinion, uh, Supreme Court argument that was just heard in the Redmond and Molina consolidated cases. Yeah. And if I could tag it right back to you, Cool Meat, can you give us the history of... Uh how we got to this Supreme Court case. And and I if if we could start in 2016, um, like I was telling you before the show, cannabis was decriminalized. Um, it, it was decriminalized in uh, 2016, but it wasn't legalized. And there right. are a couple of opinions that came out during that time period uh, or, or, or actually spoke about events that occurred during that time period. People versus Hill from the Illinois Supreme Court being that main decision. Well, it was sort of suggesting that, hey, look, you know, recreational use and complete legalization, which happened uh, starting in 2020, January 1st of 2020, um, although the law passed in 2019, uh, that's when it actually became legalized. So um, there was no provision. uh, I I mean, decriminalization means it's still illegal. It's just we're not going to charge you criminally. Legalization means you have an absolute right to have it, um, you know, unless you're under 21 or unless you have too much, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, uh, you know, the medical use, the compassionate use, that began in 2013. Uh, prior to that, it was completely illegal. And then 2016 came the uh, legaliz- uh, to decriminalization. And then in 2020 is when we began legalization and recreational use. So since Hill, we really haven't had a case from the Illinois Supreme Court to discuss um, the uh, landscape as it is now with complete uh, legalization of recreational use cannabis. Yeah, and specifically the the odor <laughs> of cannabis, it seems, has come up as the core issue that that we'll be discussing today. Absolutely. Yeah. Can, can I add on to that? And yeah. I don't. I don't think Cool Meat would disagree with anything I'm saying here, but and Cool, you and I have talked before about um, the difference between crim- decriminalization and legalization. I and it's just semantics in a way, but I kind of take the opposite of the uh, terminological approach from Cool Meat. I think uh, decriminalization. If I heard that, and I, I, you know, I'd never thought about this before, I would think decriminalization would mean we're no longer going to rely on the criminal laws and enforcement mechanism for this. And we've talked about, you know, the legalization of cannabis, the law passed in 2019 that went into effect in 2020, did not repeal a single criminal law for cannabis. It just kind of extended a tightrope out over the existing criminal laws and said, as long as you walk this tightrope, you know, fall off it, you don't do anything um, outside of this narrow boundary. Uh, then you can, uh, legally use or possess cannabis, but it, it it always strikes me the wrong way as saying we've decriminalized cannabis without repealing a single criminal law regarding cannabis. And I've taken the position that it's it's almost easier now to get in trouble, criminal trouble for cannabis than it ever has been in a lot of ways. Um, and obviously, one of the big reasons for that is uh, the same moment in time that cannabis was legalized in Illinois, January 1st, 2020, it became a criminal violation to have the odor of cannabis. So it would be like legalizing uh, guns, but criminalizing the odor of steel or gun oil. Uh, <laughs> it's it's kind of an indirect way of legalizing it, but not really. Um, and so... And again, it's just semantics, but um, it seems like we're not going to have what I would consider legalized, fully legalized, fully decriminalized cannabis 
um, until we break down a few more of those uh, criminal ways that people can get in trouble for it. Um, and obviously, that's a segue probably into the odor-proof container rule. Yeah. I mean, the odor-proof container rule really is at the heart of the uh, Molina decision, right? Because, you know, in Molina, you've got this car that's uh, traveling and it gets pulled over because um, I I think the driver was speeding. So the officer comes up to the passenger side and this is a guy who's got a medical license and it becomes known to the officer prior to the search. But based on the smell and, uh, you know, of course, the stop was based on the speeding. He searches and finds in the console some some joints that are in a box, and he finds Tupperware container in the glove compartment, which had some cannabis in it, right? So now this person's a medical card holder. The whole issue is whether or not it's in an odor-proof container. If he had gone to a dispensary uh, and, and, and gotten the, the cannabis and it was in a sealed container, it may or may not still have produced some smell. That's really the issue, right? Right. Somebody can be in complete compliance with the law, but the law that was broken in this Molina case was having was having um, was violating the vehicle code by not having it in an odor-proof container. Now that was I, a violation. I wanted to ask you about that. It's a subject I've talked to both of you about um, having cannabis in an odor-proof container, and like you said, maybe if he had it in a dispens, if he would have purchased it or they uh, purchased it from a dispensary, uh, they still would have ran into that issue. Can you, or uh, both of you, because again, I've talked to both of you about this, illustrate what you meant by that? Because most people think, hey, if I bought it from the dispensary, I'm okay. Well, you know, I, I know Evan, Evan can confirm this and, um, we don't really believe there is such a thing as an odor-proof container. That's really the problem. I think that, right. that was the thrust of the argument behind uh, the bill that the Illinois State Bar Association um, sponsored that Evan had drafted, which was to remove that word from the Illinois Vehicle Code. So fine, it has to be in you know a sealed or resealable container that's inaccessible. But this odor-proof language is a bar that's just very difficult to to uh you know ascend to and and then you've got opinions also where if a canine which has a a nose that is much more sensitive than the human nose smells it that's also considered to be not an odor-proof container because well if the dog could smell it then it's not odor-proof so that's the it's a catch-22 in illinois and you know counties that enforce it in some counties where they look at this as a reason to have their pretextual searches and find whatever they may want to find or even subject your vehicle to forfeiture. Evan, I'm sorry. No, I, I and even taking a step back, the perversity of the odor-proof rule can't be understated because, first of all, practically speaking, there are not odor-proof containers. If you walk into a dispensary, any dispensary, you it smells like cannabis. And People don't think about it, but they're not packaging cannabis there. It's not like they get a truckload of raw cannabis flour and they open a big bag and they start putting it in the containers and then it's sealed. The containers come to the dispensary sealed. The odor-proof containers required by law come to the dispensary sealed, at least every dispensary I'm familiar with. So these the, the reason why a dispensary smells strongly of cannabis is because all of the containers that the cannabis has been delivered to the dispensary in are not odor-proof. So that's that's a first point of view, a first point. And then if you go to the dispensary and you buy a container of cannabis flour and you put it in your glove box or you put it in your living room, you can your living room or your glove box will smell like cannabis. It's this is demonstrable. Anyone with thirty bucks can go test this themselves. Zooming out even further, what's incredibly perverse about this rule is the bar is unreasonably high. On purpose. Think about the rule. The legislature passed the legalization of cannabis. And then they said, we're going to make it a crime if you fail to conceal the odor of cannabis from law enforcement. Why would they ever do that? Why would they, why would any reasonable legislature who's thinking about what they're doing ever criminalize someone's failure to conceal the presence of cannabis from law enforcement? 
I think, and I have this on good authority, that the reason is because God forbid the legalization of cannabis takes away the tool from law enforcement officers that they can use the odor of cannabis to search cars. That was a major sticking point in the discussions in Springfield between the union, uh, the, the police uh, trade unions and the police lobbying groups and uh, the legalization groups was, you know, all right, if this is going to happen, if the tidal wave of legalization is coming to Illinois, at least give us this. At least don't take away our tool to be able to use the odor of cannabis to search these cars. And that is the only explanation a logical person can come up with when trying to figure out why would the government, why would the state of Illinois want motorists to conceal the presence of cannabis from a cop? You'd think that if it's about safety, roadway safety, impaired motorists, you'd think the last thing they'd want is for a cop coming up to a window to not be able to tell if there's cannabis in the car. Except they said it's a crime if that cop can tell with his nose that there's cannabis in the car. It's a crime. You've committed a crime. Right. They do that. That's an interesting layer to this that I think is not being discussed. Not only is it a means to get into your vehicle and arguably violate your rights, but it is a crime. Yeah. Just to, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, Cole, here's the other thing, right? You know, in some of these cases in Molina, there actually was cannabis in the compartment, whatever, you know, the, whatever small amount. Uh, in Redmond, there was, you know, a small amount of cannabis as well, right? L like maybe a gram or something like that. What about all those other situations where they do a search and they don't find anything, right? Nobody gets charged. The people drive away. There's no forfeiture. But there's been this huge inconvenience just because you're a consumer of cannabis in the state of Illinois. It basically puts it, it really you, you almost lose your rights in some respect, the way the law is being enforced in certain parts of Illinois. If you're a cannabis consumer. Yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. Um, and this might be a good way to segue over to the the Supreme Court hearing. Um, but one really quick, Evan, I just wanted to uh, clarify, are you I know we've heard those things before, but I just wanted to clarify since you were just, you know, giving testimony um, in Springfield. Did you hear any of those concerns from law enforcement? Like, hey, how are we going to get into the vehicles type talk? Uh um, no, the, so the, the, there's, was kind of two layers to the bill. Mm -hmm. The original bill that I drafted, the, the original thing was a simple line through the words odor-proof. Yeah. And the words, so there was can medical cannabis container and cannabis container in law. And I said, well, what is a cannabis container? Why are we confusing it? Let's just draw a line through odor-proof and a line through cannabis container. It's got to be in a sealed, resealable, child-resistant container that is reasonably inaccessible. That's a nice safety measure if we're worried about people driving down the road using cannabis. The, there was an add-on that said the odor of cannabis cannot be probable cause to search a vehicle. And so then the, the argument in Springfield kind of became about more about that second part. Mm. About you know how are we to enforce um, impaired driving? This takes the tool away from the police. What if they smell cannabis? And, and you know he gave some example. I gave him some examples where you know uh, it's not. Um, it's still the Fourth Amendment. It's still probable cause based on the totality of the circumstances. But it can't just be the odor of cannabis. So if it's the odor of cannabis and there's a bunch of 20-year-olds in the car, none of them are allowed to have cannabis, then that's another fact. If it's the odor of cannabis and, wow, this guy was driving 15 miles an hour down the interstate, his eyes are bloodshot and glassy, and he can barely make eye contact, that's those are other facts. So it's, it's just a question of, um, is it just cannabis? Because that's the rule now. Or should it be cannabis? God forbid we ask a police officer to point to one other thing, just one other thing that raises his suspicion. And that came up at the hearing. He said, well, the guy's coming from Iowa, a known, there's a known drug corridor. So, um, yeah, and, 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 I, and, I, and that's exactly it. There should be something else to corroborate usage, if you will. In Redmond, there was a strong odor of burnt cannabis, but you know, when the cop uh, went to pull the guy over, he pulled over right away. 
The guy wasn't, uh, you know, moving around in his car. There were no furtive movements. Uh, when the cop approached, when, when, or I don't know, I don't know if he was a trooper. When he, when the law enforcement officer approached the vehicle and went and looked into the window, he didn't see anything like, you know, big blunt smoking or you know, smoldering, whatever you want to call it. He didn't see anything in plain view. He just smelled it. He didn't see like a big puff of smoke being blown in his face or anything like that. So I mean. Based on that, you know, um, uh, you know, the guy didn't have a license and he didn't have registration. You know, good rule of thumb, it's good to have your license on you when you get pulled over. So he was asked to get out of the vehicle. And when he stepped out, uh, even though there were no signs of impairment, they did a search. And that's probably why the uh, trial court in Redmond sustained the motion to suppress, you know. Uh, that's exactly why, because it was just the smell of marijuana, that the yeah. smell of cannabis. That's it. And one of the things that I was really disappointed at didn't get really flushed out at the hearing is a different, you know, okay, let's go along with the idea that we're very worried about people driving high, impaired drivers smoking while they're driving down the road and they're, they might get in accidents, they might endanger other people. I, I can accept all that, but there's a difference between police officer doing a DUI investigation, a sobriety investigation, and tossing a car. Those are two totally different things. If the if if you smell the odor of burnt cannabis, it is not a fourth, it's not the same level of fourth amendment um, question for an officer to say, look, look, buddy, your car reeks of burnt cannabis. It smells like you've just been smoking. I'm going to have you step out of the car and do some field sobriety tests for me. Maybe I'm going to ask you some more questions. When was the last time you smoked cannabis? Um, maybe I'm going to look a little more carefully at your eyes. Or, you know, th there's plenty of police officer can do to check sobriety. But it's like the Supreme Court, at least in the hearing, or, or it's like the advocates in the Supreme Court in the hearing, almost looked at it as, well, that's the same thing as just saying, step out of the car. I'm now going to search your vehicle. Yeah. It's two totally different things. One is looking for whether someone's driving impaired. The other one is searching property right. contraband. <laughs> They're not the same thing. Right. So there's plenty of situations you can think of where one might be appropriate and the other might not be. And, yeah. and we got we got to separate the two. And the General Assembly, you know, has done things to to create this whole uh, or or to account for people who are too high when they're driving by having the five nanogram and ten nanogram for uh, recreational and medical users respectively, right? For having those levels in case that, that kind of THC is in their system. And, uh, you know, there's the implied consent laws where, you know, if you don't give up your, um, biological sample, whether it's blood or urine, I'm not sure. I think they use blood primarily for this kind of testing. If you don't give it up, then, you know, you see your license is suspended for a period of time, et cetera. So there, there is a mechanism to deal with people who are impaired, who drive uh, impaired on cannabis. That's there. And this search and seizure stuff that Evan and I are talking about, has got nothing to do with it because that's more about recovering large quantities of cannabis for interdiction. Um, and also by, you know, in Chicago, this is primarily used as a means to take weapons off the street, to recover weapons. You know, the, the whole idea, if they smell cannabis, it's not to, to charge you with cannabis possession. It's to search the vehicle to find if there's any other um, contraband there, any contraband, because I really don't think cannabis is contraband in Illinois anymore, unless it's too much. Right. And then somewhere along the line, civil asset forfeiture probably comes into play. Um, Absolutely. Depending on the kind of vehicle. Um uh, and, you know, the state police, uh, the, the, the law is written such that they get the lion's share of the proceeds from the forfeitures. Plain so they've simple. got a profit motive. There's so. definitely a monetary incentive uh, for law enforcement in executing warrantless searches of vehicles based on the smell of marijuana alone, period. Wow. Well, let's get right into the uh, Supreme Court case. You've kind of mentioned it. I just want to do a brief uh, so you said one of them was people. Ver There's two cases: people versus Redmond. You described and the other one's Molina, and so the other one's Molina. Redmond, you know, 
this the Supreme Court took this case because of the five judicial districts in um, Illinois. Two of them had a conflict. The other ones hadn't really spoken about this issue yet. So it was the third district, which um, uh, ruled on an opinion from Henry County. That's along the I-80 corridor, if you will, Redmond case. And then Molina, which was from Whiteside County. And Molina was the, uh, that was third district. So it's a conflict between the third and fourth district. And Evan, forgive me. I, did the districts change? Is the fourth district now the fifth district or something? Yes. Or, yeah. So that makes it even more complicated. Well, they shifted. Yeah. Yeah. But the bottom line is there was a um, conflict among the two districts, and the Supreme Court wants to try to resolve this conflict about whether or not smell alone is sufficient. And the way this case came up wasn't typical. Because in other states, the way the, came, uh, the, way the uh, cases come up, uh, as I've seen, have been, uh, in uh, many cases, based on canine sniffs. And canines being trained for cannabis detection as well as other drugs. And then, therefore, if you have an alert, and, but cannabis is now legal in the state, for example, in Colorado, is that drug sniff good enough, uh, even if something else is searched? So that's the way the, the issue presented itself initially. Here we've got violations of the vehicle code, which pertain to having the uh, cannabis in an odor-proof container. That's really the touchstone of both of these cases. Yeah, yeah. And um, I've got our first timestamp pulled up, which I think is very, very relevant. It has to do with the analogy between uh, cannabis smell cases to alcohol cases. But before we get to that specifically, um, I'm not a legal professional at all. And I think people know that. Um, but I wanted to make that clear. I just ha watching this from a layman's point of view, I like that this is it seems the defense is arguing a constitutional argument what's just i'm curious just on the the way that this that they started like were as i would say as an unprofessional person i really did i dug it i loved it um but as a professional were you like yes that's how i would have approached it, it it's all a constitutional argument at bottom the search the fourth amendment is at the bottom of all of this the question yeah. is whether you know, in the Fourth Amendment, basically boil it down, prevent, protects people from unreasonable searches and seizures. In the vehicle context, it's well recognized. You don't need a warrant to search a vehicle that's being driven down the road if you have probable cause. You don't need to get probable cause and then go to a judge. You can just search it right then and there if you have probable cause. And probable cause for uh, to believe that a crime is being committed and there will be evidence of that crime in the vehicle. And the you know we're kind of indirectly getting to it but one of the weird things about the redmond case where it's the burnt cannabis and again this is something the supreme court kind of glossed over is if the cannabis has been burnt presumably being consumed ha having been consumed um it, what evidence might there be of the crime from searching the car wouldn't the crime be the dui driving under the influence in the Molina case, where the container was at issue, raw cannabis, the evidence of the crime would be we look in the car and we find the cannabis and look, aha, it's not in a sealed, resealable, child-resistant, odor-proof container that's inaccessible. But the reason why they need the probable cause in the first place is the Fourth Amendment. So it's a constitutional Fourth Amendment issue in both cases. It's just what is the, how do you pierce through the Fourth Amendment? In Redmond, it was the odor of burnt cannabis in Molina. It was the odor of raw cannabis. If we're assuming that the officers knew the difference between the two. Yeah. I mean, constitutionally speaking, right. All searches have to be reasonable. So the issue is, is it reasonable to search a vehicle that smells like cannabis where cannabis is legal in the state? That's right. really the issue. Right. Right. And, 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 and the burnt versus unburnt, uh, I think they came to, almost um what one would consider to be um a, a, the the answer was not intuitive at all it was counterintuitive what the answer was in this argument at least right where 
And, and I think uh, there are portions that you want to play, Colt. But maybe yes. that's a segue into that. Yeah, uh, I'll start with the one that you just mentioned, which is the idea of unburnt versus uh, raw cannabis. So I'm just pulling that up right now, and uh, we will share our screen for playback. I'm going to ask you, because I'm not real clear. Are there any circumstances? And the audio is a bit quiet. I'll boost it post-production. I just wanted to say it for you if you're having trouble listening it listening to it the odor of cannabis alone is probable cause to search if if the odor is of raw cannabis and it's uh and the person is driving a vehicle and i think that whether the smell <laughs> cannabis issue is is certainly a closer call closer to the smell of alcohol not necessarily before this court but um I can see that the the smell of cannabis. So if a person is driving a vehicle and the officer <clears throat> smells raw cannabis, then the officer does have probable cause to search. Correct. Because I, because it would lead an officer to have, it would lead a reasonable person to believe that the, that there's cannabis in the vehicle and that because it is odorous, that it is not in an odor proof container. And that is the criminal violation at issue here. So, so I'm still, I'm confused as well. Uh, so the strong smell of, Burnt cannabis is not enough on its own to support probable cause for the crime of use, but the smell of raw cannabis, much less pungent, is is probable cause on its own to um, support the. Um, uh, I mean, I say support. I'm obviously shorthanding, but to probable cause to believe that a violation of the uh, transporting in a container. Is that, is that what you're saying? Is I don't, that the I don't think you're drawing? confused at all. I think you, yes, I think that is correct. So, uh, and I have to say really quick, this is a debate I've had with my parents for years. They've come into my room and they're like, why are you smoking a joint in here? And it's like, no, I rolled a joint in here. Do you want to smell what it smells like if I smoked a joint in here? Sorry, I just had to insert a little bit of humor. Well, what, what I'll say is Evan and I, I think, may have an expert witness for our next case. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you do. It sounds like you do. Yeah. They can't tell the difference, um, which I think was your point and and wanting me to cue that that clip up. Um, thoughts on that before I, I wanted to also segue to the idea of, of you know, the analogy to alcohol cases with smell. But any thoughts as I pull that up? Yeah, I, I mean... You know, in that underlying opinion, uh, the Stribling case, uh, I'm sorry, the Molina case, Justice Steigman actually uh, discusses whether or not there should be an analogy to alcohol. And he kind of throws it out the window and says, no, that's that's stupid. I mean, that's they're just so different, you know, that, uh, uh, you know, uh, he, he, he thinks that they are not really commensurable, the comparison to alcohol. And uh, I don't know. Do you, do you remember that that section of the opinion, Evan? Well, <clears throat> vaguely, but I I tend to agree with that in the sense that, um, I mean, just practically speaking, how many times in your life has show, someone shown up to a party with alcohol and you've said, "Ah, oh, smells like some good alcohol you've got there." You got to crack it open, and then you can smell it. And even if someone's sitting at a table with a glass of vodka pure vodka or whiskey or bourbon, you know, tequila, whatever, you got to get kind of close to smell it. It just behaves differently than cannabis. And um, it is unlawful in Illinois to have an, to drive around with an opened container of alcohol. That usually is like uh, you got a bottle, you've cracked, you've taken a swig, you put the cap back on. You usually can't smell it. Um I don't think it's a great analogy. I think the better analogy is the odor of alcohol and the odor of burnt cannabis. If an, an officer pulls someone over and they smell the odor of alcohol, and they'll always write in a police report, I smelled the strong odor of an alcoholic beverage on the motorist's, on the driver's breath. Coming back to the point, that's a great reason to do a field sobriety investigation. But if you put, if I've never in my entire career seen a police report that says, I pulled over the driver. I smelled the strong odor of an alcoholic beverage on his breath. I removed him from the car and I searched the car. Two totally different things. And it seems like in that clip you just played, there's kind of a 
conflation of, again, what do we do if we smell burnt cannabis, meaning the driver might be high, versus what do we do if we smell raw cannabis, meaning it might be in the wrong container. So I think that's the, when you try to use alcohol as a comparison, um, it only applies in that limited way. Yeah, here's here's what uh, um, Justice Stegman said in in uh, the Molina opinion. Defendant also argues that cannabis should be treated like alcohol, pointing out that the smell of alcohol alone has never been held to provide probable cause for a vehicle search. The implication of defendant's argument is that because cannabis, an intoxicating drug, has been legalized and regulated, Illinois case law for another intoxicating drug, specifically alcohol, should control over established precedent. We disagree and note the defendant provides no authority for us to conclude otherwise. Alcohol is regulated differently than cannabis. It's not illegal to possess more than 30 grams of alcohol. Similarly, no statutes like the um, statute which 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 I think speaks to having uh, cannabis uh, open odor in a non-odor proof container. Uh, there's no requirement that alcohol be in an odor-proof container, just that it be sealed uh, and not open. Um, so, you, you know, the, it all, I think, comes back to, and if you read that, if you read the Molina opinion, Steigman's basically saying, hey, General Assembly, it was at the same time that you did this uh, legalization of cannabis and uh, of recreational cannabis that you also changed the vehicle code and put the odor-proof language in there. You did it at the same time. We assume you dummies meant to do this and that the more specific law control. So, hey, guess what? If you smell it in a vehicle, it's not an odor-proof container. So um, nobody ever told us, no hearing was held below that this stuff always smells. It doesn't matter if it's sealed or not, that there's no such thing as an odor-proof container. That's just not in the record below. And if the judge is doing all these musings about, well, you could have worked at a dispensary and you got it on your clothes and now you smell like it, you know, that's all great and dandy, but that's not in, that's not actually in evidence. So we can't go on that. So it tells me two things. One, I'm sorry, Evan. No, no, go ahead. Please. It tells me two things. One, we got to change the law and odor proof and get that language out of the law. One. Um, And uh, two, if we don't do that, then in the trial courts, lawyers have to present testimony about how this stuff smells, whether or not it's a container, because there's no such thing as an odor-proof container. Can I do some interviewing here for a second, Cole? Yeah. So, Bob, here's what I've been chewing on. Say you present such testimony at a hearing. You have an expert mm-hmm. witness come in. Maybe you have people who work at a dispensary come in. What is the hook legally wouldn't the judge say, okay, so you're telling me that there's no such thing as an odor-proof container. What do I do with that as a judge? What does a judge do with that? Say, does he invalidate the law or is it a violation of the rational basis test? It, it, it seems like at the end of the day, the, the judge would conclude, maybe there's no such thing as an odor-proof container. And so if I'm being as, if for true fidelity to the letter of the law, I still find that it was a violation of the law and therefore probable cause. That's well, maybe it's an impossibility defense, right? Maybe, maybe it's yeah. sort of a possibility defense. Like, there's no way you can comply with the law, even if you wanted to. You know, yeah. I, I would think that would be the hook. That might be a defense to a charge for a criminal charge for um, illegal transportation of cannabis, not in the right container. I still think a cop is going to say, well, what am I supposed to do? I got a good faith defense for why I searched the car. The law says this. I'm not, I, you know, I don't have the capacity on the roadside to be, you know, testing out whether there's such thing as an odor-proof container. All I know is I smell cannabis, which just comes back to your point that we got to change that law. That law's got to go. Yeah. So if your viewers are out there, your listeners call and they live in Illinois, they should call their state rep and say, let's change this law because it's stupid. And yeah. the Senate passed it on a bipartisan basis. Right. It's just, it's, we got to revive it, you know. And that was brought up during the hearing. I thought it was interesting to see. Uh, and just for context, am I correct in saying the person that was featured in the clip that, that we did just play was the state's uh, yes. legal the attorney general, assistant attorney general. His last name is Ness. Yeah. 
gotcha. Yeah, uh, they made that uh, clear because uh, he was trying to argue that the General Assembly knew what they were doing in 2019 and they made the conscious decision to include that language. Uh, and I know the one of the justices asked, but isn't there some movement at the wasn't there movement at the Senate level? And um, it was interesting that that exchange. So, OK, what I also want to point out on that, for whatever it's worth, is that one of the things that the assistant attorney general said was the General Assembly put in the language odor proof. So this, therefore, shows that they that certainly the General Assembly thinks there's such thing as an odor proof container. Um, great argument in the context that it was made uh, factually not you know, doesn't carry any weight in my mind. I don't think the General Assembly did fact finding in that sense. I think the the law enforcement lobby wanted that in there and it got in there and no one really thought twice about it. Um, certainly the people who voted for that probably didn't uh, realize that there's not really such thing as an odor proof container before they voted on it. Yeah, and and I think the 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 difference between the Cannabis Control Act and the um, Compassionate Use Act and the language used there and the Vehicle Code, I, I think it's just you know I think the the General Assembly uh, there's a lot of bills out there and I don't think they were aware of this conflict that they need to resolve. I don't think they knew. I don't think they did it consciously. I really don't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it's. Saying that would be to pretend that these legislatures sat down and wrote all 600 pages or, or however long. And we we know that that's not always the case. I don't mean to paint with a broad brush, but that's not well, really it's sausage making at, at its highest form. Right. Um, here's an interesting point that I want to underscore. And I know, again, this this case surrounds concerns around intoxicated driving. But I think this is an interesting point. Uh, point in the case that was made um and i think it's worth some discussion here so council the rule that you're proposing does it only apply to people in vehicles or does it apply to people wherever they are if i'm just walking down the street and i smell like cannabis can the officer search me uh that would be certainly that would be a different case the the probable cause analysis comes down to the crime that's being suspected and here uh, the crimes that were being suspected of were transporting cannabis in a vehicle and a non-odor-proof container and using cannabis in a vehicle. So, so it wouldn't give the officer probable cause if I'm just walking down the street and I smelled like cannabis no, to search me. This court would have no reason to answer that question yes uh, in, in an eventual opinion. That's a different case. That would, I'm not familiar well, enough. Let's with, just assume yeah. it is, but that's what they're proposing. They're saying it doesn't give you probable cause to search. You're saying you can search a vehicle. But you can't search a person. Is that right? Because, because the crime here is smoking a vehicle or, or using cannabis in a vehicle. So you want to take that, Bob? Because I got a thought on that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, Pete Scott Neville interjects this whole idea about, OK, what about outside the vehicle? Right. And, um, you know, uh, I, I think uh, the attorney general concedes that point. Uh, I, I don't know, Evan, maybe, maybe you have a more specific point than I had on it. So the, I'll start from the back, back and go forwards. The assistant AG in that argument said, well, the crime here is using cannabis in a vehicle. But that's, maybe he misspoke, but really the crime is the container. And the container only does apply in a vehicle. It's under the vehicle code. I think everyone agrees on that. But what Justice Neville's question hit me with for the first time I hadn't thought about is if the AG is saying that the odor of burnt cannabis is also probable cause to search a car, then it would follow that the odor of burnt cannabis set inside a container because it's burnt, the odor of burnt cannabis should be probable cause to search someone walking down the street because you're not allowed to smoke cannabis on the sidewalk. You're not allowed to smoke cannabis in a public place. So when the AG says, when the attorney general says the odor of burnt cannabis is probable cause to search a car because you're not allowed to smoke cannabis in a car, it would then make sense that, hey, if cops walking down the aisle on an Amtrak train, he smells burnt cannabis, shouldn't he be able to search the passenger who smells like burnt cannabis? Hey, you're not allowed to smoke on an Amtrak, not allowed to smoke on a bus, you're not allowed to smoke in a, a public library. So if you really extend that argument out, 
Yeah, I mean, it should. The, the, the state's argument should be that, look, the smell of burnt cannabis means that you've been using it. And if you're in a place where you can't be using it, whether it's the inside of a car or whether it's in a public library or, you know, a sports arena, then we could search you. So I don't know if anyone, if any of the justices picked up on that, but that is a very sweeping argument. Um, and I think it was a really good question. I'm glad it got asked. Right. And one pertains to searches of a vehicle, not really searches of a person. And, uh, you know, when you search a person, obviously, there's other things uh, that can that can turn up. It could be additional narcotics. It could be illegal narcotics or it could be a weapon that you're not supposed to have. Or it could be something as, um, uh, you know, it could be some documents you have that you shouldn't have on your person, maybe a fraudulent ID or all sorts of things that can be recovered in the search. Yeah, well said. And like you say, it really seems to center around the in the vehicle. You can't, you can't do it in a vehicle. You can't. You can only do it in a house. You can't do it with a mouse. You can do it with. I'm sorry, it's Sam. I am uh, stupid joke here. But I've got another uh, clip here uh, that I thought was interesting. It wasn't one that that you had time stamped. Um, it was one about it, they got into a debate at the end about the strong smell versus the slight smell. And I just want to play an excerpt of that moment because I thought it was interesting because, again, it, it took me back. It almost triggered some PTSD for me uh, with my younger days trying to explain, no, it's the cannabis was not burnt in this place. It was simply prepared. Um, so here's the clip. Is the smell of the cannabis and the very, very strong smell of cannabis, is there a difference between those? Is the radiation of that smell make a distinction? that changes the calculus? In and of itself, no. And the reason is because the, the detection of the olfactory senses, as Mr. Carmen argued, is, is a highly subjective and variable. Uh, and, and so the smell alone without more is not sufficient. I gave the example of the, the strong smell of burnt cannabis coupled with smoke wafting out of the vehicle or perhaps ashes burning. So I just thought it was interesting that that was even a, a question, but I can get from a layman's standpoint who doesn't know the difference between burnt and raw cannabis, how it could be. What is the difference? Is there one, <laughs> you know? Yeah, and strong and just, just the smell and the strong smell. I mean, I don't think there's any really way to rate it, right? I mean, I remember, you know, this, this of course speaks to my generation but you know there was there was weed and then there was skunk weed you know which really smelled that was those were the two levels of weed there was weed and then skunk uh but i don't think that even dispensaries uh where cannabis is sold these days rate the smell of it i think uh maybe the you know intent in terms of intensity they're obviously they rate it on uh other things that they test for that are much more uh, important, I suppose, like THCA and et cetera. Yeah. So, so oh, go ahead. There's the idea, and I think this came up with the argument a little bit that quantity of cannabis is going to translate like a perfect line, you know, perfect graph line for the more you have, the stronger the smell is. And there's some mention about, well, we're worried about the big quantities of cannabis, the traffickers. Practically speaking, if you are a drug trafficker and you're moving pounds of cannabis, you're going to put it in a vacuum sealed bag. You're going to cover it with axle grease. You're going to put it in two more bags. You're going to make sure it doesn't smell. The people who are getting their cars tossed for the smell of cannabis, I would guess, I don't have empirical evidence, but I would guess that they're almost exclusively personal use guys who have some buds. They put them in a Ziploc bag and seal it and throw it in the glove box or in the center console or it's in their pocket. Um, the, it's an asinine idea that you know the stronger the smell the more likely it is going to be some real drug trafficker moving a large weight and a lot of times uh and evan knows this too but in in large trafficking cases you know uh, obviously you can search a, a commercial vehicle we're talking about personal vehicles that are being used to ship pounds of uh cannabis you know usually it's not the trooper that smells anything it's usually their dog that smells something you know and under the current law, the smell by the dog also means it's not in an odor-proof container. So green light to search the entire vehicle, guys. Yeah. And I've interviewed 
several law enforcement officers currently and formerly uh, employed on the service. I don't know what the technical term is. And they've all conceded to me that if such a device, an odor-proof container, did exist, well, their canines would be re- rendered ineffective and they would no longer use them. But that's not the case. <laughs> so it's just interesting to hear it from the other side of the table. Right. I mean, the state troopers are saying that they're not imprinting their dogs for cannabis anymore. They're they're phasing them out. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, you know, drug interdiction, you know, interdicting for meth, fentanyl, opioids, whatever. That's still fair game. I mean, the only thing we're talking about right now is whether or not an alert by a dog that's trained in cannabis is fair when cannabis is legal. Yeah. Well said. Well, um, any any other thoughts on this? I wanted to talk about next next steps and what that might look like. But I just in case we didn't touch any bases that that maybe you had uh, wanted to touch regarding this case. Um, well, I mean, I, I don't know if Evan agrees with me on this, but based and, and, and to the extent that you can tell the way a case is going by the questions posed sure. by the justices, I, I'm not very happy about the way that whole argument went. I think mean, that's why I first, when we first talked, Cole, about this, uh, I was uh, I was a little um, concerned about what the uh, actual outcome in this case, and the court's uh, overemphasis of traffic safety and roadway safety, I think, um, was not uh, handled uh, as well as it could have been by pointing out the distinction that Evan and I pointed out earlier with respect to um, uh, tried and tested ways of determining through field sobriety tests and others whether or not somebody's impaired. Redmond involved an individual who was not impaired. Molina involved a speeder where it was the passenger who had the weed. Okay? There was no impairment in either of those cases. I don't know why impairment's an issue. That's a brilliant point that I didn't even, I think you actually did make that point when we last spoke. And yeah, I think that should be more at the forefront of this conversation. Evan, any thoughts? I regretfully believe that as long as it remains a crime, to have cannabis in a non-odor-proof container, that I think Molina got it right. If we're talking about the smell of raw cannabis, um, I don't know how it's very pretty unambiguous. You know, the it's got to be in an odor-proof container. If the officer can smell raw cannabis in a vehicle, there's some cannabis in there. It's not an odor-proof container, and that's setting aside whether officers are properly trained or able to distinguish between burnt and unburnt cannabis. My biggest fear is that they the supreme court is going to they took a dumb case <laughs> they they took a case where there's burnt cannabis on one in one they took two cases burnt cannabis in one case uh unburnt cannabis in the other case container at issue in this case driving impaired to the issue in this case it, so, so it's going to be difficult for them to draw, write a coherent opinion either way what i'm worried about is that um, they're going to render some opinion that is the product of simply not having been properly educated by the advocates about what are the issues here. No one in that argument mentioned the difference between a field sobriety investigation and a vehicle search. Like the justices were not well served in terms of framing the issues. So I'm worried that they're going to write an opinion that is difficult to fix through simple legislation and that is going to be overly broad and it's going to be based on the fear of impaired drivers. And it's going to basically say, regardless of the state of cannabis or container rules, um, because it's a danger to drive impaired and it will always be a danger, it'll always be illegal to drive impaired. Police can always search. That's what I, that's my biggest worry of the case. And if they say that the odor of cannabis is probable cause to search a car setting aside the container just because it might be a DUI, it's going to be really hard to fix that through legislation. So that's my fear. So on that happy note. 
Yeah. Well, that's actually what I was going to ask you about next steps. So from what I understand, you know, these rulings could come out within the next three months, give or take. Am I right on that from based on what you what you all hear? Um, and yeah, my follow up question to that would be, well, if we don't get a favorable ruling, maybe then we could just bring your law back, uh, your bill back up rather and hope hope that it gets signed into law. But you're saying that maybe if we do get an unfavorable ruling, that could even become more complicated. This, right. So, damn. That's our uh, fear. That's our fear. Yeah. Cause, cause don't because don't forget, the Supreme Court probably has an idea of what the, what the legislation would have been, too. Because and I'm not trying to beat a dead horse, but because the bill that struck out the word odor-proof was just, it was a simple, clean bill. You know, pro- prohibiting the odor of cannabis doesn't serve any interest. Um, odor-proof containers aren't a real thing. And what's the government's interest in prohibiting order proof containers? This is just a Trojan horse to get past the Fourth Amendment to search cars. If if the Supreme Court writes an opinion that says, no, 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 this is about traffic safety, it's going to be a lot harder to get the senators and the representatives to sign on to a bill that undoes that. Because then everyone's going to say, you're trying to undo this safety thing that the Supreme Court did. And just politically, it's going to be uh, step backwards. Gotcha. Oh, yeah. The sausage is, it's ugly watching that sausage get made. Yeah. Well, okay. um, any other, any other bases you want to cover in terms of what the future could, could look like with it? I mean, ultimately we're just waiting for a ruling, right? And that could, or could, that could, or could not complicate things moving forward if we want to actually substantially address this. I guess what I haven't asked yet sorry, I'm kind of thinking out loud, is if they ruled favorably, and by that I mean in, in towards the defense, not towards the state, um, would that mean this, like, what What would that mean, potentially? Well, I mean, or, what that would mean is that they would need something more than just the smell of cannabis to search a vehicle. It, that yeah. would mean that they would need uh, some other information, maybe a tip, that this car is traveling with cannabis, uh, maybe something in plain view, uh, maybe something in response to uh, roadside questioning about where you're coming from, how long you've been on the road, where'd you go to, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So without without that additional, uh, without any other additional information, the smell alone would be insufficient. If the, if if the uh, uh, the prevailing parties are the defendants in this case. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, I think we've covered all of our bases on this. I just have two unrelated questions uh, to this to this case that just kind of were brought up through the course of this uh, discussion. But before I officially close this, any other bases that we wanted to cover uh, with regard to this Supreme Court case and, and odor of cannabis that we haven't discussed yet? Just wanted to give you the space. I feel like we've pretty much run the game. You know, obviously... Obviously, there are other interesting issues in this in this space also, and and that also that has to do with uh, the Industrial Hemp Act and and a lot of you know uh, a lot of THCA laden delta eight or delta nine below 03 percent THC. I was going to ask you that. I got this from a hemp store. This is THCA. It's just like weed you would get at a store, but it's it's hemp. So. As far as hemp goes, it doesn't have to be transported in an odor-proof container. Obviously, this isn't part of this case, but it's just like you say, it adds a layer of nuance to the, this is weed. Smells like it, smokes like it, but doesn't have to be transported like it because it has this little sticker on it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. Well, not just the sticker. It's, it's hemp. Well, no, but is that not cannabis? No, well, it's not. It's under the Industrial Hemp Act. It's excluded as cannabis if the THC at a certain point in its growth is less than 0.3%. And and the state has to prove, I believe, at trial that it has more than 0.3% to be cannabis and to be subject to the Cannabis Control Act. And uh, Attorney Galholtra, one of the attorneys you know, uh, 
Tom Howard recently came on my show and and talked about this issue because he's a license holder and he very much sees it as competition to his business because people are literally just selling weed out of storefronts. And I guess to put it in a bottle for folks that are wondering, if you've ever made edibles, the reason you have to decarb, decarb your weed is because weed in and of itself is mostly THCA. That's THC in its acidic form. You have to activate it by heating it. And that's when it becomes Delta 9 THC, which is illegal. <laughs> so so that's an art, that's a point that never got brought up at the it's not even in the record in these either of these two appeals, but you'd think that does that smell the same as weed? It is weed. In fact, the point that it, Tom Howard not. makes, they sell THCA flour at the dispensary. So uh, it's just another wrinkle in the case. If that's legal to have and it smells like cannabis and it's in a car, then that's another potential explanation for why an officer might smell weed, right. might smell the odor of cannabis, say, no, 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 you smell cannabis. It's not an odor-proof container or you smell whatever we're calling it. <laughs> but it's a industrial It's like saying I have a pet skunk in the back of my car. That's, that's another possible explanation for why you smell what you smell. Well, and to quote the state, I recently attended, a, and then we'll close with my other two quick points. Uh, the state recently uh, said, and by the state, I mean the Cannabis Regulation Oversight Officer, who was appointed by J.B. Pritzker, said that local law enforcement has been hesitant to deal with people that have been caught with what they claim is hemp. They don't know what to do with it, so they just send them on their way. And I'm just thinking, that's kind of a win. For once, yeah. for once <laughs> police aren't able to harass you. Just because you say it's hemp, you know, and then they're like, oh, gosh, I don't want to go to the links of having to prove that, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah. Actually, I raised it in one of my cases involving two pounds. Yeah. It's it begs the question, why are we doing any of this? <laughs> you know, like, what's the point? It's like we're because it's a billion dollar industry for the state and because the state wants to protect its. Uh, revenue stream that it's getting from the legalized sale at dispensaries. That's why. And well, that's, Bob, look at you being all reasonable. <laughs> no, that's actually one of the two things I wanted to bring up in closing. So the first thing was what what uh, Cool Meat just brought up, which is I've asked Cool Meat, and I think I've even asked you, Attorney Bruno, like what's the outlook on repealing the Cannabis Control Act of 1978? What's the outlook on making things like home grow legal and removing arcane ideas of, of possession limits? Bob, do you still feel like the chances are low because that's a competitor to their big, revenue stream? Big time. There's no way the General Assembly is going to fall for that. What about you, Attorney Bruno? Do you think uh, meaningful reform, as you refer to it as, is, is, seen, as, a, uh, is seen as competition? to the bottom line of the state and these operators? Uh, of course, yeah. It would have been easier to do 10 years ago than it is now. Yeah, yeah. Well, my last question is about the point oh, the point, the five nanogram uh, per se limit. And I'm just curious as a legal professional what you think about this clip. This is a person that was involved in drafting that law, and this is what they had to say about uh, the, the point five nanogram standard. Let me make sure I'm... Talking about right. for a DUI, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. So this Who's person, users. Yep, yep. So here we go. Still an element, and it continues to be a major problem of uh, in, intoxication, driving while intoxicated with cannabis, because we don't have a .08, nor do we have technology to even enforce that. If we didn't have any kind of standardization, so there's no there's no per se limit. Illinois actually has a per se limit, but we literally made it up. We made up the per se limit. It's not based on 50, 60 years of driving while intoxicated with alcohol that we know 0.08 is the average. And yet we all know somebody who's 90 or 100 pounds who drinks one beer and can't drive. And we also know people who drink 12 packs and are just fine because the body absorbs alcohol differently. And same with cannabis. Some people that are regular users are not necessarily impaired, even if they're using quite a bit. So that was a person that was, in, you may recognize that as state representative Bob Morgan, uh, who's been involved. And as he said, we literally made up the per, se, the per se limit. I'm just curious as a legal professional, like, do you have any thoughts on that? Like, does that ever, does that inform maybe like how you might 
defend individuals in the future if it's literally just made up? <laughs> well, I, I think they borrowed it from another state, actually. I think it's point oh, I think it's point five in Colorado. Yes, right? you're correct. Right. You're so correct. They, they look to other states to see how to do it. The bottom line is uh, um, that, you know, unlike with alcohol, they really haven't done research on what it what happens to people who smoke uh, and then drive. They haven't done any tests like they have with alcohol impairment. And uh, so there needs to be uh, more money put into doing that kind of research to have uh, better data for implementing policy uh, on these issues. Uh, we just don't have it yet. I think I think to some extent we're still in sort of the infancy stage of um, or at least the toddler years. We're, we're still in those, I think, when it comes to cannabis usage and 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 the infancy when it comes to the cases and the legal opinions out there interpreting a four year old statute. I would also say impairment, aside from alcohol, impairment is always kind of made up. You know, if you don't have a prescription for Adderall, but you're pulled over and you have Adderall in your blood, it's a DUI. Even though no one has ever claimed that Adderall impairs one's ability to drive, it probably makes it better. Um, impairment, it's not necessarily about impairment. It's about setting some punishment for uh, doing something naughty and driving as kind of a vehicle for enforcement. That's before sense. that, before that, it was per se, Evan, right? I right. mean, before yeah. the point five, it's like if you had anything in your bloodstream, boom, it's a DUI, which also meant if you had an accident, it's a reckless homicide. Right. And that, that was true. You know, with cannabis, it can be a month or more while it's in your blood. And there were cases like that in Champaign County. Fatal DUIs were no, no evidence whatsoever of any present impairment. But sorry, you smoked a joint two weeks ago. You're going down. People, there are people in prison for that still. So wow. it was a per se violation. You didn't have, they didn't have to prove impairment. Right. So yeah. now there's 0.5, which, you know, is, is uh, light years away from, from not having to prove anything. Right. Yeah. Well, here's an interesting question to close on that I didn't think of until just now. You're, you're almost arguing your way out of a job by pushing to address these lang this language. Or is it, do you fight for this just because your heart's in the right place or like, you know, because most most people would think that after legalization, the job of a cannabis defense attorney would go out the door. But no, you're, you still got a lot of work to do. I'm just curious what makes you want to address this language. Well, I mean, uh, I mean, you can go first. No, I hadn't thought of that. I mean, a soft, I, I, it's kind of a softball yeah, question. I'm going to I'm I'm just... back off. I'm going to back sure. off on all this now. No, it's <laughs> I. I yeah, it might not be. It might be in my interest that more people get pulled over and get their cars searched and they find guns and drugs. But um, at some point, you got to kind of focus on the bigger picture and try to do the right thing. Uh, I'll still have cases. There'll still be crimes. Um, but when I go to bed at night, I'm happier knowing that I try to do something towards the right thing than maybe that I miss out on a couple cases. Yeah. Pretty well said, huh? Cool. Me, anything to add before we close? Cool. Not at all. I mean, you know, we 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 try to fight as defense lawyers for what's fair, you know, and uh, it just seems to be able to legally purchase something and then be subject to search because you legally purchase something which is in a container that's not really odor proof. That's unfair, and that should be changed. Yep. Well, folks, um, I hope you found as much value in this conversation as I did. I think uh, Bruno and Galholtra are two names that you want to keep in the back of your mind uh, if you choose to use cannabis at all in the state of Illinois, judging off the nuances uh, that, that were discussed in today's conversation. Um, take care, everybody, and we'll see you on the next episode.